As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The European Central Bank has raised its rates for the first time in more than a decade, responding at last to the inflation that plagues many economies. But the bank has a finer line to walk when it comes to keeping things on track across the continent. And in Bangladesh, it's not so easy to find a stiff drink. But plenty of people do, in speakeasies and on the black market. Now the country is loosening its laws a bit because there's just too much money to be made behind the bar. First up, though. It's been over a year since a congressional committee was set up to investigate the Capitol riot of January 6, 2021. On primetime television last night, witnesses gave excruciating accounts of the hours spent by former President Donald Trump after the riots started, but before he called them off. We also remind you of what was happening at the Capitol, minute by minute, as the final violent, tragic part of Donald Trump's scheme to cling to power unraveled. I was disturbed and worried to see that the president was attacking Vice President Pence for doing his constitutional duty. I remember thinking that this was going to be bad for him to tweet this because it was essentially him giving the green light to these uh, people, telling them that what they were doing at the steps of the Capitol and entering the Capitol was okay, that they were justified in their anger. The committee showed that in the immediate aftermath of the attacks, President Trump couldn't bring himself to denounce the violence. You do not represent our movement. You do not represent our country. And if you broke the law, you can't say that. I'm not gonna, you, I already said you will pay. The last night was the commission's eighth public hearing. Initially, it was intended to be the last. But before it began, Liz Cheney, the committee's Republican vice chair, announced there would be more starting in September. Even so, the hearings leave little doubt about who the committee believes bears ultimate responsibility for the violence that day. Last night's hearing by the January 6th committee summarized the case that has been made so far against Donald Trump for his actions ahead of the attack on the Capitol. Idris Kaloon is the Economist Washington correspondent. This hearing focused principally on the president's actions for the three hours between when he gave a speech and when he finally gave word that the riot ought to end. What we did see was a blow-by-blow accounting of what the president was doing or really what he wasn't doing as this mob was taking over. He wasn't in touch with the military. He wasn't in touch with law enforcement. And that is despite the repeated counsel from people in the White House to try to get him to make a statement. And even when he did, what we saw from the full footage of him trying to give the speech was that he couldn't help himself from giving 
messages of love and support for the people who were presently attacking the Capitol and trying to kill his vice president. And how successful have these hearings been? I mean, have they, have they done what they were intended to do? These hearings have actually been fairly successful in not only capturing attention, but in presenting a strong case against the president. What they have done really well is taken a story that we all witnessed and that felt quite familiar and added an incredible amount of detail. And this committee so far seems to have had two purposes. One is to lay out the breadcrumbs for a possible prosecution. And the second is to convince Republicans who have by and large stuck with Donald Trump to abandon him. And we saw that explicitly in the closing statements made by Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, the two Republicans who were on the committee. Donald Trump knows that millions of Americans who supported him would stand up and defend our nation were it threatened. They would put their lives and their freedom at stake to protect her. And he is preying on their patriotism. He is preying on their sense of justice. And on January 6th, Donald Trump turned their love of country into a weapon against our capital and our constitution. You mentioned that one of the thrusts of these public hearings was to add detail to a story that we already knew. What sorts of details did we learn tonight that we may not have known before or that we didn't fully understand before? I think tonight was much more of an encapsulation of the material that might have been covered in the last seven hearings that you know many Americans might not have tuned into. You know, We learned small details like where the president was sitting, what he was watching. But over the course of the hearings, we have learned new things. We've learned of the full extent of the pressure that was placed on the vice president to essentially usurp his constitutional duty to affirm the election results, which is what the president was pushing him to do. We learned of a simultaneous effort by the president and some of his supporters to pressure state legislators into overturning their election results. And we learned quite a bit more about the attempt to remove the attorney general and place a much more pliant Department of Justice official who is firmly on the stop the steal side of things. And we saw one thing that has become abundantly clear from these hearings is the extent to which only a few good men and good women stood in the way of an even more severe constitutional crisis than we experienced. Were there any specific interchanges, any moments, any images from last night that really stuck with you? Certainly the president stumbling over his lines the day after January 6th, being unable to admit that the election was over, refusing to say that. That's just a lack of shame and sense of national consciousness that you know, maybe it might not surprise people, but it's nonetheless stunning to witness for yourself. The other, the, the, the committee seems to have had, you know, particular antipathy for Josh Hawley, who's the senator from Missouri, and they made a point of embarrassing him by pointing out that, you know, before the riot began, he proudly held his fist up to the protesters who were gathered outside of the Capitol. As you can see in this photo, he raised his fist in solidarity with the protesters already amassing at the security gates. Later that day, Senator Hawley fled after those protesters he helped to rile up stormed the Capitol. See for yourself. Afterwards, they showed video footage of him jogging away at a quick pace from the oncoming protesters. So, you know, they seem to have wanted to score a hit there, and I think that they have. Those are the two moments that immediately come to mind. You mentioned earlier that this was supposed to be the last hearing, but it won't be. 
And Liz Cheney, when she announced there would be future hearings, used a sort of cryptic phrase. She said, the dam has begun to break. What do you think that means as far as where the committee goes after this? What do you expect the future, the future work of the committee to focus on? So I don't know for sure. But one thing that we've seen over the course of these hearings is that they have had a snowballing effect in terms of getting people who had previously not been willing to testify to actually come forward. We saw that with Pat Cipollone, who was the White House counsel, whose testimony was played several times. And there could be more people like that who come forward. The second is that the committee has also been fighting legal challenges to its subpoenas to some parties close to Donald Trump that they've been interested in, including Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows. And it could be the case that they believe that within a month or so, they will actually be able to compel testimony out of people who had been previously unwilling to deliver it. But that's just my speculation. I don't know for sure. Let's switch gears for a bit. The other big news sort of related to the 2020 election and to electoral administration that came out of Washington this week was that a bipartisan group of senators had worked on an update to the Electoral Count Act. Can you just tell us briefly what that act does and what the update does? So the Electoral Count Act was passed more than 100 years ago and basically establishes the procedure by which the Congress and the vice president essentially ratify the election results. And everyone agrees that that law was fairly poorly drafted and quite ambiguous. For a long time, this was treated as a sort of ceremonial oddity. No one had ever thought to exploit it to try to keep power. So fixing the Electoral Count Act is actually probably the most significant fix to American voting laws that that could be attempted. And it's taken a long time, but this week we learned that bipartisan deal had been struck between Democrats like Joe Manchin being one of them and, and Republicans like Susan Collins, which would essentially clarify the role of the vice president and limit the sort of constitutional ambiguity that had created so much discord. So basically to close off the possibility of something like this happening again. You mentioned earlier that one of the purposes of this committee was to try to lay out a criminal case against him. Do you think after what we saw last night that President Trump is any closer to being indicted, whether that's by a a court in Florida or whether by the Justice Department? I think the probability has certainly gone up. We know that the Department of Justice is looking at the evidence that the committee has been finding, but it will be a difficult prosecution, both in terms of actually proving certain kinds of crimes but also the fact that the precedent of prosecuting a former president is just a huge hurdle for them to leap over. I've been personally quite interested in the ongoing grand jury investigation that's happening in Fulton County in Georgia over the president's attempt to basically solicit the overturning of the election there. And that seems to me to be a much more cut and dry case than the theory that's being advanced here, which is that you know the president should have known that his words would incite this action, and basically that his inaction, his not calling the military or the law enforcement soon enough, constituted what the phrase that they kept going back to was a dereliction of duty. But of course, the issue is that it's hard to translate that into an exact crime that is being violated, and it's even harder to imagine finding a jury that could fairly adjudicate that trial. So, you know, I think the probability has gone up, certainly, but it's still a tough road. And I guess we'll pick it up in September when the committee reconvenes, and I'm sure we'll have you back to discuss it then. Idris, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. 
As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. First, America's central bank raised interest rates, then Britain's followed suit. Now, amid similarly rampant inflation, the European Central Bank has made its move, its first rate rise in 11 years. But yesterday's increase of half a percent was larger than the bank had signaled at its last meeting. The European Union has war on its doorstep, the threat of further punishing energy price rises, and now a fresh political crisis in Italy, one of the bloc's most indebted member states. It really signifies a turning point for the ECB and also an exit from this long-running policy of negative interest rates, which had been in place for several years. Henry Kerr is our economics editor. Interest rates actually below zero, which is highly unusual, but now no longer the case. The ECB's president, Christine Lagarde, set out her thinking to reporters after the announcement. Price pressures are spreading across more and more sectors, in part owing to the indirect impact of high energy costs across the whole economy. Accordingly, most measures of underlying inflation have risen further. We expect inflation to remain undesirably high for some time, owing to continued pressure from energy and food prices and pipeline pressures in the pricing chain. So we know inflation is high in a lot of places. What's the situation in Europe? And and do you think this intervention will arrest it? Well, euro area inflation is comparably high to economies like the US and the UK. It was 8.6% in June. The UK and the US are both above 9%. But it's important to keep in mind that the nature of the inflation is somewhat different. So in the euro area, more than two-thirds of the inflation is accounted for by food and energy prices, In the US, less than half the inflation is accounted for by food and energy prices. And that is why the ECB, though it has raised rates in this historic move yesterday, is not acting as aggressively as the Federal Reserve in America. It's trying to find this landing zone, which is ultimately probably at a lower level of interest rates, enough to get rid of that inflation that is being driven internally in the Eurozone economy, but not to drive the economy deeply into recession, because ultimately there's nothing the ECB can do right now about high energy and food prices. So just to understand why it is that we've got what we've got and when we've got it, it seems as if the ECB waited longer than America and Britain to, to raise rates. But you said the, the jump was bigger than expected. What's, what's the thinking behind this, both the, the, the magnitude and the pace? Well, that's correct that they waited longer, and there's several reasons for that. One is that before the pandemic, the ECB had a much bigger problem with low inflation or inflation expecting to be undershooting the 2% target uh, than the Bank of England, which didn't have that problem really, or the Fed, which had it to a lesser degree. Europe also had less fiscal stimulus than those economies. It didn't deliver widespread checks to people like America did. And so it's had less of an economic rebound that has driven inflation in quite the same way as American stimulus has. So it had less to offset. But I think ultimately we just reached a point 
where the dangers of high inflation, notwithstanding those differences, were sufficiently high that the ECB had to move. I also think the decision was the result of a compromise within the ECB. And at this meeting, the Hawks got something they wanted, which was a higher than expected rise in interest rates. But the Doves also got something that they wanted uh, in, in exchange for that. And what was that? Well, the ECB has multiple problems that it's trying to address at the moment. It's got the high inflation, yes, but it also has the problem of rising spreads in bond markets, which means the excess that indebted countries have to pay to borrow above what safer countries, in effect Germany, has to pay. And that is a perennial worry for the Eurozone. It's a threat, ultimately, to its financial stability and to the integrity of the currency area. And as had been long trailed, the ECB unveiled a new tool to buy bonds in indebted countries, most significantly Italy. You know, reading between the lines, mostly this is a tool designed to deal with Italy. That tool looks fairly aggressive. Lagarde emphasised that there was no limit on the amount of bonds that the ECB could buy in order to keep spreads down. And so on the one hand, you have quite a hawkish move on the monetary front in terms of higher interest rates. But on the other hand, you have what might be considered a sort of dovish move in the debt markets because the ECB is going to be more interventionist there. Is there not a a, a conflict there? Does Does this not look a little bit like robbing Peter to pay Paul in some way? I think what the potential conflict is, is between two different aims. So in the 2010s, the ECB could in effect stand behind the debt of countries like Italy and buy their bonds as part of its bond buying program and say that that was completely consistent with its inflation goal of targeting 2% inflation because inflation was too low and those bond purchases could be justified in terms of the inflation target as well as in terms of preserving the integrity of the euro and stopping a financial crisis. Now, those two goals are somewhat in contradiction because inflation is too high. You cannot justify the interventions in bond markets in terms of a stimulus, in terms of getting inflation up. You can only justify them in terms of financial stability, protecting the integrity of the euro and so on. The trouble is that that's a much more controversial justification for those interventions because there are lots of people in Europe who do not like the idea of Europe, in effect, shouldering the debts of indebted countries like Italy together. But when the ECB buys Italy's debt, that's to a certain extent what's going on. And so the ECB's justification for bond purchases is harder to sell in an inflationary environment. With that tension in mind, where where do all of these moves leave the ECB and, and Europe? Well, I think that ultimately the ECB is powerful enough to contain the spread on Italian bonds if it has to. It can keep those borrowing costs somewhat in line with borrowing costs of Germany and prevent an Italian debt crisis there, while at the same time raising interest rates somewhat to fight inflation. So I think the central scenario is that that works. Inflation comes down. You know, we've already seen commodities prices falling recently Uh, which should help the ECB and lessen the dilemma it faces. The real nightmare scenario is if Europe's inflation problem turns out to be worse than expected, more embedded, and it persists. Because if the ECB had to raise rates more aggressively than currently expected, if it had to raise rates to, say, 3 or 4%, then at that level, 
Italy and Germany, even if they face the same borrowing costs, Italy would run into trouble. It wouldn't be about the spread of Italy over Germany anymore. It would just be about the fact that interest rates would be so high that Italy might find its debts hard to service. So I think that's a sort of nightmare scenario. That risk is there, but it's not the, the most likely outcome at the moment, which is that the ECB muddles through much as it did in the 2010s while running this sort of tail risk of disaster that seems to perennially hang over the Eurozone. Well, I have no doubt that we will be talking about that risk of disaster in future. Henry, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. One of the most popular bars in Dhaka is called Aram. Susanna Savage is our South Asia correspondent. It's on one of the busiest streets in Bangladesh's capital, but it's really, really difficult to find if you don't already know it. There's a big black gate in front of it, and that's pretty much all that gives it away. When you walk through the gate and into the building, you're greeted by this stench, um, cigarette smoke, sweat, urine, and of course, liquor. kind of a dodgy place. It's not terribly inviting from the outside, nor from the inside. And those who failed to tip the waiters enough risk being reported to the police for breaking Bangladesh's very strict alcohol laws, which make drinking illegal for Muslims. But despite this, tens, if not hundreds, pass through the door each day. And this is just one of many places of its kind in Dhaka and in other parts of Bangladesh where drinking goes on illicitly. Always illicitly because essentially it's it's mostly outlawed? So yes, that's right. Drinking in Bangladesh is mostly outlawed because it's against the law for Muslims to drink and they make up around 90% of the population today, which has sort of grown over time. It's more than the Muslim population was when Bangladesh became a country 50 years ago. Other religious groups are exempt from the ban, but they need a permit from the government to buy and drink alcohol. There was a loophole introduced for Muslims in 1950 But for them, a permit requires a doctor's certificate stating that they require alcohol on medical grounds. Few people bother to get this, though, because it's a bit of an ordeal. So that means that most of the drinking that goes on is illicit and it feeds a very lucrative black market for imported liquor. And now the government has overhauled the rules in a bid to increase local sourcing and to bring boozing in Bangladesh within the law. Overhauled the rules in what way? So Muslims are still required to get a permit and they still need a doctor's certificate to get that permit. But they've changed the rules in terms of the restaurants, bars, private members clubs and hotels who seek to get licences to sell alcohol. They've changed these rules to make them less ambiguous and to make it clearer and to set up a greater structure for how to get these licences, which should extend the number of places that can both have bars and sell alcohol legally. The new laws also oblige these places to buy 60% of their stock from the country's two licensed producers. So that's Jamuna Group, which makes Hunter, the country's only homegrown beer, and Caro Co., which is a state-run spirit distiller. It makes things like gold ribboned gin, old rum, imperial whiskey. So those are the two at the moment which are licensed in the country. So this isn't uh, um, a set of moral reforms or even really a, a set of legislative reforms. This is a money spinner. Yes, exactly. There is 
definitely room to make more money, and especially from the growing number of foreigners in Bangladesh. These sort of range from the humanitarian staff that work in the refugee camps, which are home to nearly a million Rohingya refugees, to Chinese labourers who toil on infrastructure projects and their bosses. And the rules are sort of aiming to lure in more foreigners. Domestic tourism has taken off in Bangladesh over the past decade or so, but foreign tourists have sort of steered clear of the country. And this is often blamed on conservative alcohol laws and dress codes. But there are plenty of Bangladeshis to buy up the booze, despite the fact it's illegal for most of them. During the pandemic, which hindered flows of foreign alcohol and prompted a police crackdown on the black market, Carrie's profits from alcohol surged from 2019 to 2020 to the following year. And although you could say that the foreigners were drinking it all alone, I think it seems quite clear that they had a helping hand from locals. So yes, the government, by tightening up here and turning a blind eye there, can cash in on alcohol sales from its boozy citizens. So do you think this could act, though, as, a, as a, a sort of change in the in the moral status of this? Is, is, is booze likely to be more widespread, more accepted, more legal? I think the idea of a total legalization is off the table, even if it is really lucrative financially. In April, lawyers with ties to Bangladesh's main opposition party challenged some of the new rules in the high court, partially on moral grounds, sort of pointing out that it could lead to social degradation, etc. And... If the government takes on that legal battle, it will definitely want to do so quietly. There's an election coming up next year and the country's powerful Islamic groups are riled by any whiff of alcohol, whether it's legal or not. So I think it's highly unlikely the government will want to go for a full legalisation anytime soon. Susanna, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with help this week from Saul Rivers. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jack Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent, and our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Rory Galloway, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and Kevin Kaners, and assistant producer Abisoyo Sundairo. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now they must address not just cycles, But cyclones, storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.